Welcome to EMS Cast. Before we get to today's episode, we have a couple of announcements. First, thank you. The podcast has seen some incredible growth over the last two years, and we owe that all to you guys. We rely on word of mouth to grow, and you have clearly been spreading the word. We truly appreciate your support and engagement and hope that you continue to share our content with others who will find it useful. Second, we have an exciting announcement to make. Our podcast has recently been added to the Flightbridge ED website. Flightbridge ED is a fantastic platform that offers a wealth of educational resources for pre-hospital and critical care transport professionals. We're super excited to be included in their collaborative creator network. We encourage you to go check out their website at flightbridgeed.com and explore all the other valuable content they provide. You can find our show under the Foam Ed tab on the website. And under that same tab, you can find a bunch of other really great free online access medical education resources. So go check it out and find more ways to scratch that education itch and become a badass EMS clinician. Lastly, if you're discovering us for the first time, maybe through the FlightBridge Collaborative Network, welcome. We're thrilled to have you a part of our community of growing like-minded pre-hospital providers who are striving for excellence in the field of pre-hospital services. Will and I are incredibly passionate about this. Twice a month, we strive to bring you the highest level education out there for providers on the front lines. We want you to learn one, two, or even three steps past what they taught you in the classroom. You are the first line of defense and the first line of treatment. So you should be trained like it. You should feel prepared to handle whatever comes your way. That's what we're here for, to feed you that training so that you can go into your next shift with confidence and expertise. If you listen and enjoy our podcast, Please help us spread the word by recommending us to your friends, colleagues, followers, and anyone else who could benefit from our content. Your support means the world to us, and you're the reason we do what we do. As always, you can check out additional content on our Instagram at EMScast, and check out the supplemental blog post to each episode on our website, emspodcast.com. That's emspodcast.com. And continue to reach out to us. Let us know your questions and feedback. You can always connect with us on Instagram or email us at ross at emspodcast.com and will at emspodcast.com. Now let's get to this month's episode. Here you on eight. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Will Berry. And I'm Ross Orpit. And we are back again at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference in Breckenridge, Colorado. And we're sitting down again with Dr. Bo Burns. He's the George Kaiser Family Foundation Chair of Emergency Medicine at the University of Oklahoma's School of Community Medicine. He's worn many hats over the years, including he was a medical director for a flight service in Oklahoma. We talked to him earlier today about pathologies that can happen in the spine, and he's going to be giving another lecture soon on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and we wanted to jump at the opportunity to talk to him about that. So thanks again, Dr. Burns. You bet. I appreciate the opportunity. This is actually one of my favorite things to talk about, especially with pre-hospital personnel. There's so many unique aspects of patient care in that arena and how I think this therapy is so helpful and can really change the trajectory of 
that patient interaction and how they do shorten their hospital stay, prevent intubation and things like that. And we'll call it non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. We might say non-invasive ventilation. Sometimes I might say BiPAP or bi-level or CPAP. I like to use those terms interchangeably. The NIPPV gets a little long to say sometimes. Otherwise, the podcast would be two hours. So <laughs> we can... Just an acronyms yeah, alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that's what we're talking about today. So Yeah, I mean, this is such an important tool. It's one of the tools that has changed the game of emergency medicine more than anything else I can I can think of. So super important thing to understand the physiology of what you're doing when you apply this therapy and how helpful it can be in certain patient populations. Sure, sure. So first off, tell us about some of the patients that you like to talk about that benefit the most from these therapies. It's really interesting. If you look at the literature on acute respiratory failure, it's kind of siloed. And a lot of our critical care colleagues have, you know, there's type 1 hypoxemic failure, right? There's type 2, which is hypercapnic failure. And there's like a mixed failure. And and that's great. And that's wonderful. But what do we have in the pre-hospital setting? Or what do we have when we see that patient for the first time? That person's in trouble. That's what we have. We have somebody who's either, you know, hypoxic, who's struggling to breathe. And so really what I I like to distill this down to is to let's think about just two patient populations. And this isn't the only time you'll be using this, but think about your COPD population, right? And maybe your CHF population, your decompensated heart failure patient. And we can talk about how this therapy can help each one of those populations. So if you, in your mind, think about kind of that, that, frail, COPD person, tall, thin, expanded lung volumes. Maybe they're wheezing, maybe they're not, maybe they're distant, but they're labored. Did they put down their cigarette when we walked in the room? (laughs) Yeah, well, they turned off their oxygen and then put down their cigarette. (laughs) So yeah, so no nasal burns, no airway issues here, so good. So, you know, one of the things that's helpful for me that I want to know is what was the initial saturation and what were the end tidal CO2 measurements? And interestingly enough, in Tulsa, and we've got one of the at my unbiased, completely unbiased opinions, because he's my good friend and, and fellow faculty member, Jeff Goodlow is the IMSA medical director in Tulsa. And for years, they were the only ones that had entitled CO2 monitoring. We didn't have it in the hospital yet. So I would always grab the crew. What's the entitled CO2? And remember that relationship, one of the pearls to remember for if the entitled CO2 is 40, I know the PCO2 is at least that, but could be higher. That's just the, the important piece to remember on that relationship. So let's take our COPD patient. He's hypoxic and maybe hypercapnic. The number one teaching point first is just recognizing who's in respiratory distress and what do we need to do. And this isn't somebody that you're going to go straight to intubation with. This is somebody who you want to talk to them about this therapy. You may have some supplemental oxygen on them, but what this is and how to apply it and how to get through it. So let's say, because I've, I've you know, run these patients on the ambulance before, but maybe we're called for shortness of breath. Yeah. Yeah. That that patient you described, they're, maybe they're on nasal cannula oxygen, mm-hmm. that they're on all the time, but it's not helping anymore. Mm-hmm. And maybe we see some of those hallmark things, the tripod. Yeah. And I find that the pursed lips can sometimes be really subtle and uh-huh. you just have to appreciate it. And then maybe the two, three word dyspnea. And they're saying things like, you know, I've tried some of my normal things. I turned up my home oxygen <laughs> a little bit. I, <laughs> I did my nab or my inhaler. And it's not helping. So yeah. is that where you're going with this? Yes. I'd love for you to take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that pursed lip breathing, and you'll hear people say, oh, it's, oh they're auto-peeping. They're auto-peeping. What does that mean? That means they're trying to increase their intrathoracic pressure to open more alveoli. And remember, that's what positive pressure does. 
So when you see that, like when I see that, I know, man, this person's really working hard. They've got the accessory muscle use. They're up, their arms are gripped, they're white knuckling it, right? And so that's a lot of oxygen delivery to skeletal muscle tissue that you really want to shunt towards gas exchange and prevent that. So what I would stress for the folks who are making first contact with these patients, you don't have to know, is it COPD? Is it CHF? Is it obesity hypoventilation syndrome? Is it ARDS? Is it pneumonia? You don't have to know that. You have to recognize who needs it and who is a candidate for this therapy, right? So they have to be awake. They can't be apneic. They, can't, they have to be able to participate in the therapy because the way the bi-level works is when you put the mask on, it has a continuous CPAP or EPAP, which is expiratory pressure. But the inspiratory boost is triggered by a drop in airway pressure when the patient takes a breath. And one of the most important things, the crucial aspects is when you start that therapy, because the way that I like to frame this and to describe it to people is for the first time that someone is really acutely dyspneic, and this may be the first time they're getting the application of this therapy, they are universally terrified, 100%, right? You never see a non-anxious hypoxic person, right? They're, they're scared to death. And that Putting the mask on, wrangling it around their head can contribute to that. So one of the most effective tools that I have found is you have got to be a good coach. You've got to be calm and reassuring. I know you're scared right now. That's okay. This mask is going to help you. Let me hold it up to your face. We've got to make a good seal around your nose and lips because that's going to help deliver this breath. Learn to work with this machine. It's going to learn to work with you. And then what you will see is you'll see, you'll kind of coach them on relaxing their arms. They will achieve what's called patient ventilator synchrony and their work of breathing will improve. And then you can work on pressure settings. And we can talk about that a little bit more, but that's kind of your goal. I don't always just strap the thing on and then, and then go. Cause I, and I know sometimes at our time on scene is something we think about, right? Like that's something your medical director is going to ask you, hey, why are you guys there a long time? But I'm talking about maybe five more minutes. I'm not talking about a lot of time, but it will really change the trajectory of how that person does down the way. Because I'm not a huge fan of anxiolytics in this setting because I don't want to dampen their mental status because that can really make things go south quickly. Many agencies carry a disposable CPAP. Mm -hmm. They don't have a ventilator with BiPAP settings. So they carry one of those disposable CPAP masks that it's kind of on or off. Yep. Sometimes you can adjust the peep. Some of them you can, some of them you yeah. can't. Do you find that that same strategy benefits those patients? Absolutely. And, you know, the higher the CPAP is, that can reduce their tidal volume. Because if you think about it, you're like, well, what is CPAP doing, right? In, it, in that expiratory pressure, you're inflating the lungs. So there's less distance between inspiration and expiration. So increasing by five decreases your tidal volume by about 167 milliliters and then going to 10 decreases it by 367. So it's a pretty significant change. So I like to keep that as low as possible. Now, if you're on the bi-level, looking at the measurements, looking at the language that they use, inspiratory over expiratory, right? And this gets into what kind of manufacturer you have. 10 over 5 is a great place to start. 8 over 4 is a great place to start. And then you can titrate accordingly. But you always want 4 to 5 centimeters between the inspiratory number and the expiratory number, okay? Some pre-hospital vents have a, a setting. It'll say, they'll come in and say, well, we got them at 5 over 5. 
And so it's like, what the heck is, what does that mean? <laughs> so that's five of pressure support and five of EPAP. And so just to get everybody on the same page from a vernacular standpoint, the pressure support is the difference between the inspiratory and expiratory pressures. So really what you're saying is 10 over five. So it's just to kind of get everybody on the same page. And, and to back up, a lot of us are familiar with CPAP, so constant positive airway pressure. Yes. So that mask is providing a, a constant pressure yeah. into that patient's airway. Yeah. And then BiPAP or bi-level is regulating different pressure that gets delivered when a breath is triggered. Yes. And so those of us that have worked with CPAP before have brought these patients into the emergency department on CPAP, and we've seen how quickly respiratory puts them on BiPAP. Yes. How is the BiPAP therapy helping the patient more than the CPAP? It's a great question. And if you're listening to this podcast now and you're driving down the road and you can safely do this, what CPAP feels like is if you roll down the window and open your mouth, that's what CPAP feels like. It's just like this, oh man, it's just this pressure. And the idea behind the inspiratory boost is that's going to help you inflate your chest to increase your tidal volume. So it actually feels better to the patient. You can have the same expiratory pressure on CPAP or BiPAP, and they will say, gosh, that feels better. Thank you. Because they're getting some help that reduces their work of breathing. And so if you think about, like back up just a little bit, let's like really simplify things down to the nuts and bolts of what we're doing. What is the point of the EPAP or the CPAP or the expiratory pressure? That's what you're addressing when the person has saturation issues. I'm trying to recruit alveoli. I'm trying to open them. So that's what that expiratory pressure is going to do to help increase their saturations. Okay, what about if they have a PCO2 problem? I'm going to increase their inspiratory pressure because I need to increase their tidal volume. It fascinates me. Every time I talk to a group of students or learners, everyone always wants to touch the I to E ratio. Don't touch it. Quit messing with it. If you'll address these inspiratory, just remember, inspiratory for PCO2 and expiratory for PO2 or hypoxic issues, that will help you kind of go, okay, that's going to help me understand what parameter to adjust to address what the patient needs. And you'll have that in the pre-hospital setting with your entitled CO2 and your pulse ox. Great. So talk through that with us, with a patient. If you have the ability to control these parameters, how do you titrate them to specific patients? Let's take our imaginary patient with COPD and let's say his SATs are 90. That might be good for him. I mean, right? So let's start him at 10 over five. And, and the one thing is I always talk to them about, hey, is this your first time on this? Have you had this before? And if they're like, yeah, 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 give me the mask. Okay, great. We can skip the coaching part, right? So then what I'm going to do is I'm increasing their inspiratory pressure to start generating some good tidal volumes. And the number that I kind of have in my head is around 350. If I can't generate a tidal volume of 350, that's probably not going to work very well. So I start low, 10 over 5 or 8 over 4, and then I increase usually the top number that will help. So I, sh I have a slide in my presentation. You know, in the folks with higher BMIs, what you're fighting against is that diaphragmatic excursion. So patient positioning is going to be really important. We always want to sit these people straight up, but think about a third trimester pregnancy. Like if you're sitting straight up, that diaphragm doesn't have a lot of room to move. I like to lean these folks pack about 45 degrees and man, that'll stretch out and you'll see an increase in their tidal volume. So if you think about the mechanics of how bi-level is distributed, it's the same pressure, but their tidal volume will vary because that is driven by the patient. 
So you'll see that. You'll be like, I'm at 12 over five. That says 375. That says 400. That says 500. That says 475. That doesn't make any sense. That makes perfect sense. That's what I expect all the time is that variability in the tidal volume. What about bronchodilators with this therapy? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. You hear some wheezing, give them a bronchodilator. That's fine. That's totally fine. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Now, so let's talk about what happens. Like what's the physiologic effects of this? You know, you're, we're, we're doing this. They look better. What's happening, right? Let's think about preload and afterload. And you might've heard somebody, maybe one of your preceptors or one of your, you know, I don't want to say older, more vintage colleagues you work with. So yeah, it mops the lungs dry just dries them out if they're in pulmonary edema, it dries them out. What does that mean? That doesn't make any, you know, what I want to know what that means, right? We're scientists. So I'm putting this pressure onto the patient. It increases their intrathoracic pressure. Okay. So there's a decrease in preload. I expect a drop in blood pressure, especially somebody who's maybe volume depleted. You take that COPD patient that's been at home, increased respiratory rate, not eating, not drinking. They're dry. I expect their pressure to drop. Give them some fluids. That's okay. We've decreased preload, we decrease afterload. If you think about your decompensated CHF patient, maybe that flash pulmonary edema, patients are scared to death, right? Blood pressure's 200, they're short of breath. That's almost always pulmonary edema, right? Until proven otherwise. You're putting a pressure blanket when you have this therapy on them around their left ventricle. So the pressure difference inside the left ventricle and outside in the thoracic cavity is decreased so their ejection fraction can increase by 10 to 15%. So you're actually moving them out of the decompensated heart failure curve to a more efficient state of operation. And man, they're like, oh, wow, this is great. I actually feel a lot better. Yeah, that was a big concept for me to grasp was, you, you know, a normal inhalation is a negative pressure operation, <laughs> right? So... That air comes into our mouth, down our trachea, into our lungs. The volume is expanded, negative pressure is created, and air comes in. When we start introducing positive pressure into that system, we completely alter the atmosphere, for lack of a better word, inside their chest. Sometimes super beneficial to the patient. Other times, maybe in the setting of a traumatic head injury, not so beneficial Absolutely. to the patient. Right. But I think that concept was really important for me to grasp when I started having to mess with these settings. And I think it's important for other pre-hospital providers to consider. So it's interesting that you bring that up. And I'm glad you did because I actually have a slide in my presentation of that classic COPD, hyperexpanded, flat diaphragm patient, and then like the decompensated CHF, and then like an ARDS, and then a normal chest x-ray. And that's the head injury patient, right? Because we talk a little bit in the lecture about kind of a lung protective strategy. Because really, you do want as low of pressure as you can, right? We're trying to keep that plateau pressure low, and we're trying to keep our peak pressures low. And in the acute, acute setting, that may be something that we struggle with a little bit more. And usually on non-invasive, that doesn't become as much of an issue. But on your, like say, for instance, your head injury patient, usually they're really easy to oxygenate and ventilate unless it's a multi-system trauma patient. But for the, the purposes of kind of my lecture tomorrow, I talk a lot more about just the, what we see probably a lot more, which is kind of that type one and type two and mixed respiratory failures. So understanding that change in physiology that you're causing with the non-invasive, are there any patients that give you pause where you think, maybe this isn't the right therapy for these patients, or maybe it's not even due to the physiology, but something else that would... You know, I talked to you guys a little bit about before this, I have this kind of fun little rant I use on my lecture. And 
And everybody that I worked with, all my former residents and all my former AirVac colleagues heard this as well. But, you know, no one needs a non-rebreather. And that always, everyone always like wrinkles their eyebrows in the audience when I say that. So, you know, you think about if somebody has that much of an oxygen requirement, they probably are needing something else. And that's the leap I want you to make clinically in your mind is they are going to need either positive pressure or bronchodilation. Was it diuretic or is it something like that? So the person who may not be a good candidate is maybe that person whose PCO2 is 100 or 110 and they're so somnolent that they are just completely out of it. Now, that being said, I have BiPAPed some of those folks. You can set the rate on the BiPAP. You know, it's almost like a BVM then, but I also don't leave the room. I don't leave the room. I'm there with them the whole time. I've got my intubation stuff set up. And as you guys know, in a, the busy practice of emergency medicine, you can't always do that, right? There's always 10 things going on. But if, if I can be there and I can prevent that person who I know is going to be a challenge to extubate, keeping them off the vent, that's a pretty, pretty big deal. Other ones you can't, they've got to be able to participate. So, you know, not postcode, not apneic. I'm really hesitant on overdoses or if there's a high aspiration risk. Relative contraindication in later stages of pregnancy, and that's because of lower esophageal sphincter tone. It doesn't have anything to do from a respiratory standpoint. Does decreased blood pressure give you pause at all? I know that it's going to decrease more when I use it. So let's say, for instance, let's, let's talk about a septic patient. I might use non-invasive as a pre-oxygenation therapy with full intent of the expected clinical course of this patient is they're going to require intubation because I want to shunt that oxygen delivery. I want to take their work of breathing out of the picture, especially in let's the setting of lactase four, severe septic shock and, and things like that. But the really hypotensive patient, I do have some pause for the long-term use of non-invasive ventilation because that may not be the right candidate. Now, what's interesting is sometimes we'll have these patients kind of like that and we feel good because we're saving an intubation, right? Like we don't want to intubate this patient. And then critical care comes down and goes, yeah, they're going to need to be intubated. You're like, dang it. And, but it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. They have the perspective of being able to look at what they know that patient's probably going to look like tomorrow or the next day. And they're going to do this now and, and just get it done. Yeah. And I love that piece you said before about the mental status. I've said this before that, you know, a decreased mental status is certainly a relative contraindication. But I, I think it's more of a safety concern in the emergency department. When you're in the back of the ambulance, eyes on the patient, yeah. ready to act if yeah. they vomit, it's maybe less of a concern and maybe you can try it. Maybe not. Maybe they are too far gone and yeah. you need to proceed down your algorithm, but maybe it is something you could try if you have eyes constantly on that patient. Well, and the truth is, and, and one of the reasons I really like it is it is a great pre-oxygenation therapy, right? Like you can deliver 100% FiO2 at positive pressure. That's a heck of a lot better than I can do on my own. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to ask you about, in my experience, these patients, they need some time on the therapy, yeah. Yeah. which I think to a pre-hospital provider can honestly be a little scary because mm -hmm. they're, they're in acute distress. You've initiated this therapy. You want it to work right here, right <laughs> now, right. but it needs a little time. Can you speak to that? What's happening? Yeah. And it's a great, that's a great question. You know, I always make the joke that slow IV push with ketamine and the ED is like two seconds versus the normal, right? Yeah. So we, we do have a very compressed time frame, and we want things to get better, right? So they're not going to be normal and they're not coming off this therapy. And I can tell you my practice for as long as I've been using non-invasive and I use it a lot and all of my residents know how to set it up. We don't ever want to wait on our respiratory therapist. That's one of the things you learn 
when you're a student is you learn how to set this up. No one cares if you can explain the Frank Starling curve to the patient who's decompensating, like hook up the dang machine and help them. I never take someone off non-invasive that our EMS colleagues have started. Never. I, st- I keep them going. The shortest I've ever had is probably two or three hours. And some of them do get to come off, but most of them do not. Don't expect them to be looking great by the time you show up. And that's pretty normal. Just because of the physiologic derangement that is present at that time is such that it's going to take some time, some therapy, some diuresis, some recruitment, some oxygenation. So really what I think, if I'm in the back of the truck and I'm with this patient, what am I watching for? to know that things are improving. Look at their mental status, look at their work of breathing, look at their saturations. So COPD, is their saturation coming up? Is their end title coming down? Is their work of breathing getting better? Are they relaxing their grip? And I'm constantly asked people, and I always tell the patients, you don't have to talk. You don't have to talk. Are we doing better? Thumbs up. Are we about the same middle thumb? Are we doing worse? Down, thumbs down. Do I need more pressure? Does it feel like it's coming fast enough? Is it too much? Is it too slow? And I'm very deliberate about not making them talk, especially in the early stages, because I want them to save their breath. So look at their work of breathing, look at their blood pressure, look at their oxygenation, and also monitor. You're gonna have some people that are difficult to get what's called a good mask fit. So you'll see a leak. It's measured in what's called leak on the machine. So you'll see some air leaking out like folks with beards. And that's why some folks with like mid-face trauma are not good candidates either because they have to have a really good fit on the mask. So that's totally fine. I'm not going to shave somebody's beard to put this on, but I might need to deliver a little bit extra higher pressures to achieve the same tidal volume. Yeah. And that's the point about not taking these patients off too, I think is something that we often teach our, our residents because these patients can come in looking really great but you don't understand how terrible they looked when EMS arrived before they put that positive pressure ventilation on them. And they haven't just spontaneously fixed. They're much more comfortable. They look much more comfortable, but that physiology is still going on and they still need time. Right. Absolutely. And you know, in the ED, we hate it when critical care comes down and we do the same thing, right? We need to extend the same courtesy to our pre-hospital colleagues, right? Absolutely. We should talk a little bit about troubleshooting. Okay. So patient comfort's a big one. I want to make sure that I'm achieving my goal. So really, if I'm first making contact with this patient, is this a hypoxic problem? Is this a hypercapnic problem? Is this mixed? How's their comfort level? Are they having pain? Are they having anxiety? Anxiety in this population makes me anxious because I'm worried, is this just hypoxia causing anxiety? And again, like I said earlier, I don't, I don't want to depress the mental status anymore. I'm not opposed to 50 mics of fentanyl in these folks because that will most of the time help a lot. It is uncomfortable. They're scared. That's going to help calm them down just a little bit. And the nice thing about it, as you all know, as everyone knows that's listening to this, it's a really short acting agent. You're not giving them hydromorphone or anything like that. But from the machine standpoint, ask them if they're comfortable. What can we do to change the settings? How's the mask feel? Because sometimes that can be uncomfortable too. And I really think just talking to them a lot about how are you doing with this, you know, and it's going to help kind of calm them down. And you really do kind of have to get a little close with them, especially on the first time, folks. You know, and they'll say, I don't like this. I don't like this. Listen, and I, I tell people right up front, I, I know you don't like this and that's okay. I need you to work with it. This machine right now is helping keep you off the ventilator. And you don't say it in a negative way or you're in trouble way. But that usually gets traction with people because they're like, oh, now I know why you're doing this. 
those providers that do have BiPAP available mm-hmm. to them, you talked some about th- some of the initial settings and parameters that you consider. Mm-hmm. Does that change in your mind for COPD versus a CHF patient? A little bit, maybe. I mean, so for instance, you know, my standards, I start about 10 over five. I'm in there. I'm messing with that thing immediately. Sometimes the respiratory therapist asks the resident, what settings do you want? And they'll be like, settings do you want? <laughs> you know? yeah. But I'm 10 over five is great. But just remember, to go back to kind of review what we talked about a little bit earlier, if you're trying to attack that tidal volume on the COPD patient, I'm much more likely to increase my inspiratory pressures. And I've never, I don't think I've ever gone into anything over like 20, but I'm going 12, 15, 16, and I'm looking at that tidal volume and I'm looking at that patient for work of breathing. There's a setting called the rise time. And it usually on like the Philips ventilators, it, it goes from one, which is like almost like a jet ventilation to a five, which is super slow. So I ask patients, does this feel like it's knocking you over or do you feel like you're having to pull it? And sometimes, especially when they're tachypnic, if you're at a three or a four, they'll be like, I don't feel like I'm just not getting enough air. I'll drop the rise time to two. And usually that's like, okay, okay. Now they're, now they're feeling really good. Now they're feeling really good about that. Now on the CHF patient, Maybe what I'm trying to do is help with oxygenation. I might go up on that bottom number a little bit. But remember, you want to have five between the the inspiratory and the expiratory at at the least. But on the CHF patient, you're probably already doing some nitro and things like that to help with the blood pressure. Because really for them, with the restoration of that, kind of fixing that cycle that they're in when their blood pressure goes down, they feel a lot better. And we do a lot of those high-dose nitro patients when they come in. That's the one where you have to tell the nurses like, okay, here's what we're going to tell you to do. And I'm sure about this. So what I do on those patients is I'll start at 10 over five and I start escalating up both my inspiratory settings and my nitro together and then watching the blood pressure, watching the patient. And then I can kind of titrate them back down uh, where they need to be. I'm curious your perspective on some of the less common presentations that benefit from this. Like, let's say someone with profound atelectasis mm-hmm. after like a, a drowning event. Mm-hmm. Does that change your approach at all? You know, on like a near drowning or drowning event, most of those sometimes come in intubated just based on kind of how they were doing. But that's also dependent on patient condition and, and vital signs. Now, I do see some major value in it, especially in that person that's awake and talking and and you are trying to recruit some alveolite. That doesn't doesn't sound like a go home kind of person. Usually, the the folks that I start this on, I, I they don't go home unless they're you know signing out or something like that. Yeah, I think a patient population. I agree. I, the the drowning patient may be a little more rare, but a similar physiology for a patient who you absolutely might see is the opiate overdose wake mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. who develops that yeah. pulmonary edema yeah. after getting Narcan can certainly benefit from just some time on non-invasive. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's kind of like that old adage, opiate withdrawal won't kill you, but Narcan might. <laughs> so we get a 20 to 30 fold increase in our circulating catecholamines, and it's not uncommon to see that. And that really does help them. That really does help them. Just again, just watch their mental status and, and things like that. But you know, the, the other time you might use it is in someone with like a lot of neurological conditions, degenerative type conditions where they need some help. They've had a, kind of a degeneration of their skeletal muscle and their, their muscles that are involved in the work of respiration. And that will help those folks a lot too. One of your last objectives was about lung protection. Can mm. you speak a little bit to that? So I have a few slides in there about lung protective strategy and it's from the ARDSNET website. And it's really interesting because 
we tend to, on the intubated patients, we set it at 500 and move on. Just too high. It's too high. And it has, it's always a good refresher to look at that and go, okay, here's the, there's a table for males, there's a table for females, and what are those vent settings? And it may be 350, it may be 450. Tidal volumes that we normally in the ED don't use because it seems too low. But if you think about the way you estimate what the tidal volume is, it's four to six mLs per kg of ideal body weight based on height. So if you think about your stretcher in the ED, it's 72 inches. So I kind of, we kind of play this game, like how, it's like the carnival game. How tall do you think they are? And a six foot tall man who weighs 150 has the same size lungs as a six foot tall man who weighs 400. And the problem that we have and the, the mistake that we make at the bedside is we go, that's a big person. I bet they got big lungs. Their lungs are the same size and it's based on their height, okay? The ideal body weight for that height. So I put that in there as just a reminder. I've also got a slide in there of our intubation checklist. I'm happy to share that, that we've come up with because it's great. Intubation is a complicated procedure and we know that checklists help us with task completion and efficiency. And I'm, I'm happy to share that too. Absolutely. We'll post that in the show okay. notes. Okay. Thank you so much. This therapy is incredibly beneficial in the pre-hospital context and it's been a game changer you know, in the last 20 years in pre-hospital care. And I think sometimes the mechanics of applying it or the decision to apply it is sometimes kind of simple, but what's happening is not simple. It's a complicated thing. And I think helping folks understand that is crucial to them properly applying the therapy. So thank you so much. I can't wait to to hear the lecture. Oh yeah, sure. Thanks for letting me come back and talk and really appreciate it.